Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 400 with my guest, Jake McShiggish. Uh, wow, 400 episodes. I cannot believe that. Eight years later, 400 episodes, and I didn't plan for this to fall on the 400th episode, but this is, I think, maybe the most, for me, the most exciting episode to share with you guys because it's a subject matter that is near and dear to me, and Jake's story is compelling, and I also think it's a... Uh, it's a story that is historically relevant and important, um, and I think it's, I'm just so excited, and I, I hope you like it. If you don't like this episode, don't email me. You will crush my spirits. Um, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, go to mentalpod.com. That's the website for this show. And we need you guys to take more surveys, especially the happy moments and the awfulsome moments surveys. Those are kind of the, the moments of light, uh, that break up the darkness and the, uh, and the darker surveys. And, um, you guys have slowed down and, and filling those out. So if you could, if you have any happy moments and they don't have to be big, that that would uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, um, subscribe to the podcast uh, through iTunes. That would be, or I guess it's called Apple Podcasts now. Um, and you can get, uh, I guess, a year or at least a year of episodes uh, free. Um, and then I think starting 
episodes that are before 2017 are only available at Stitcher Premium, and that's just uh, $4.99 a month, and then you get access to a huge amount of other podcast back catalogs. And our back catalog goes all the way to March of our first episode in March of 2011, so hundreds, hundreds of eps in the back, did I just say eps, in the back catalog with some great guests. Um, Tiffany Haddish, Maria Bamford, Mark Marin, Janet Varney, Paul F. Tompkins, uh, Dr. Ellen Sachs, uh, NHL legend Theo Fleury, uh, just too many, too many to even, even begin to try to uh, remember. So if you do sign up for Stitcher Premium, be sure to, uh, um, do it through our link or when they ask you what podcast you're signing up from, um, say the mental illness happy hour. We have links to all this shit and ways to help the podcast on, uh, on our website. Um, I was, I was just came from my support group meeting, um, about a half hour ago and we were talking about compartmentalizing things. And uh, it's funny how this plays out, too, because as you hear Jake's story, um, he, towards the end of his interview, shares how it came to a head, his years of compartmentalizing the horrors of um, being in the troubles, both on the receiving end of the violence and oppression and on the uh, end of, um, uh, you know, attempting to kill British soldiers. Um, and I was thinking about how it's interesting sometimes how we don't realize that something we buried is painful because when we compartmentalize it, it takes on a dulled, uncomfortable quality that doesn't feel like pain. And I think that's why we compartmentalize it, you know, why our brain does that is so that we can keep functioning. Uh, but there's also the danger that because it's just kind of a dull, restless, empty feeling, we never give credence to the fact that we might be bearing something that was actually traumatic. And so for many of us, we go decades without even thinking to mention these things or bring them up because they don't feel like a, you know, a fire burning inside of us. So we think it's something else. We think our life is just unsatisfactory or we're a piece of shit or, you know, the future is just doom and gloom for us. But in my experience, those can be the repercussions of compartmentalizing ourselves and then finding things to distract and numb us, acting out sexually, drinking, shooting drugs, um, being a workaholic, you know, being a love addict, all of those things distract us. So it's the, like the compartmentalizing and then the distracting are the two things that we really need to face, I think, to be able to clean out all the shit that backs up inside us emotionally as we 
get knocked around in life. Um, but once we feel that pain and that, and that trauma is processed, it's so freeing to be on the other side of it because then it's easier to be present and to connect more deeply to people. And I just wanted to share those, those thoughts with you. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this, this, uh, episode with, with Jake, um, who is a former IRA, uh, soldier slash volunteer, um, whatever term you want to use for it. Um, and, uh, I want to lead into that with an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Gashley Crumb Tiny. And he writes, my alcoholic mother and stepfather abused me physically and verbally throughout my childhood. One of my earliest memories, age three or four, is of my mother screaming at me on Christmas morning about how horrible I was because I had woken up early and opened some presents. Um, Christmas is still really hard these days. It got worse after that. They unpredictably lost their tempers and battered me. In between, there were frequent threats to kill or abandon me. Anything could trigger their rage. About 20 years ago, I wrote to my mother asking for an apology and a, pro- and, uh, and a, a promise that she would never again harm another child. I had concerns that she might hit my sister's kids. I warned her that if she didn't make her promise, she would never hear from me again. She replied, but there was no apology or promise. Instead, I got excuses and sly digs. Just recently, I found out that my mother has a website offering holistic counseling. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, the suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> 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 I'm here with Jake McShugish, who uh, is a former IRA soldier. Uh, is, that, is that the terminology? Would we you? just call IRA volunteers. IRA volunteer. Um, we're here in uh, Belfast, and uh, thank you for taking time out of your, your schedule to, uh, to come uh, share some of your story with us. And, and many thanks to Michael, who... Uh, hooked us up. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, one of the reasons I'm excited to, to talk to you uh, about is, is you know, the history of the oppression of not only Irish culture um, and Irish rights, but also uh, the Irish language and the time in the, in the 1970s uh, when the troubles. Well, I suppose late sixties when the troubles began. You were a kid. You were yeah. I was um, well. The troubles de facto began in nineteen sixty six, um, but there had been from about 
mid sixty. I was only born in nineteen fifty eight, and I can distinctly remember in the run into what they call the Troubles, there had been UVF killings that killed nationalists. And, and UVF stands for Ulster, the Ulster Volunteer, Volunteer Force. Force. They were a Protestant uh, paramilitary militia um, who nationalists suspect were funded and, and assisted by the RUC. All and uh, RUC being is Royal, Royal Ulster Constabulary. Constabulary. <laughs> Constabulary. <laughs> the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So um, the, the RUC were the official local police. They were the official local police. And the UVF were kind of the Protestant version of the uh, IRA? Yep, basically. Yep. They okay. were, the UVF were <clears throat> um, in, in two great phases when the northern statelet was set up. The UVF were involved in the slaughter of um, over 600 Catholics in this city. Um, so that was the first um, heavy oppression. So nationalists who were trapped on the wrong side of the border. Um, and what time would that have been? 1921, after the Anglo-Irish Treaty and the granting of independence to 26 of Ireland's 32 counties. They created a thing which is called Northern Ireland. Um, mo most unionists refer to it as Ulster, but it's not Ulster. Ulster has nine counties, and Northern Ireland has six. And the reason they only took six was because the six counties would guarantee an inbuilt Protestant majority in perpetuity. So that's that's why that region was chosen. Ger gerrymandering. It was gerrymandering it um, on a huge scale, and. Um, we're actually at the end at the end game of that now because demographics has changed and uh, nationalism was almost on par with unionism within the northern state. M meaning that the, the Catholic population has caught up to the Protestant. Not just caught up. Um, the Catholic birth rate is twice the Protestant birth rate and the Protestant death rate is twice the Catholic death rate. So they're accelerating downwards and we're accelerating upwards. Why is the Protestant uh, death rate? Uh, They're a much older um, oh. population profile, I much older. Um, so they're gradually um, dying off. Um, most Protestants who have the opportunity usually leave the north of Ireland and go abroad. The young people, people who want opportunity, they go abroad because this place is stifling in its um, standing on an integrity of a very old argument, <laughs> you know, it's a just whose land is it? Yeah, and that, that that's the heart. I mean, that's the heart of the conflict. The heart of this conflict really is if you look at the plantation of Ulster in the sixteen uh, hundreds. The problem with the plantation was it wasn't successful enough, so they didn't kill enough natives to subdue them. So there was always a resentful native minority left and um, also the Protestant Unionist community constantly lived in a siege mentality. These people are going to come back looking what was theirs. So there was this mutual distrust and loathing built they're, into the... They're going to treat us like we treated them. That's, that's exactly what you had. And in 1960s, Really, what had happened was free education was the key to change in this place. 
a Labour government after the Second World War brought on free education and that affected everyone. So the first generation of Catholics who had went through third level education on merit and not on money were beginning to emerge from the universities and they were beginning to ask very fundamental questions. Why is it right that an employer can stamp a card saying reason for refusal of employment, Catholic? You know, so that, that was illegal? That was legal. They, they, there were only two grounds. One, um, you would be refused benefits if you didn't have a legitimate reason for not getting a job. And one of the grounds was Catholic. So you could go to the Social Security and say, I didn't get a job because it was Catholic. So, and, and, f- and previous generations had just kind of tolerated that because it, well, they, they didn't too, know how to organize? Well, or? they were too small. I see. But, they, I mean, saying that, the IRA campaigned in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s. The IRA had fought campaigns in every generation uh, since the inception of the state. And by 1965-6, there was a sea change. That what you had now was the beginnings of a nationalist expansion, the beginnings of a nationalist educated class, and that class was beginning to ask fundamental questions of the state. And the very fundamentalist wing of unionism which believes all manner of madness from they're the lost tribe of Israel to um, Catholics are all condemned to hell and they're all God's chosen so you've all of that in there and also at a very base level anyone who wants to hold on to something sees those who are demanding change as a threat so in the late 1960s civil march Civil rights marches started. They were heavily influenced by what was happening in America and the black civil rights movement, right down to the fact that we sang the same songs on the marches. I remember as a child singing We Shall Overcome and being really in admiration of the Black Panthers and what they were doing in America and saying, like, I mean, why can't we do that here? And by 1968, I remember... For me, that was really the first moment that I understood in absolute terms that there was a them and an us. And it happened quite banally. We were going to visit. My mother left school when she was 14, like most women. Um, she went as a half-timer in the mill. And the woman... Was the linen mill? The linen mills, yeah. Uh, and <coughs> the woman she started working with was called Sissy Watt. And Sissy Watt, we would have visited Sissy at Christmas, we would have visited her at Easter. And I think this was Easter, uh, but it may have been later in the year, I just can't be sure, I was about 10. But myself, my mother, Pauline and Carol, my two sisters, went to visit Sissy. And there had been a riot in Newry and a riot in Armagh around a civil rights march. Uh, a raid? A riot. Oh, a riot. A okay. riot. Okay. People uh, rioting. And when we reached Sissy's door, she pulled the door open and held it with her foot and said, Rosaline, you're not welcome anymore, and slammed the door. These are people who had worked together for, for years. And I remember not understanding it, and, but I also remember it was the first moment that I realised my parents weren't omnipotent. My mother was afraid. I didn't know what she was afraid of, but I knew she was afraid, and her fear was being passed on the house and I was going mummy what's that and she says shut up shut up just get home go move move get home don't be asking that 
she brought us home to um, Ardoin, to my grandfather's house. And we were, I remember my mother going into the kitchen and my grandfather saying, I told you they were not your friends. I told you they would turn on you. So the next time... I, I and were they Protestant? They were Protestant, yes. Okay. And when I met um, a lad who was Sissy's son, Jim Watt, he, um, I knew him. He was a few years older than me, but I knew him when I was a child. And um, the next time I met him was in Crumlin Road Jail and he was part of a UVF gang that were in for, among other things, killing my cousin. Wow. And um, he was also um, convicted of uh, bombing a Republican funeral, bombing a Republican march. And I think Was it, was it the Bloody Friday one or a different No, one? no, this was a, a funeral. He bombed, um, he bombed the Easter parade in 1977 in Milltown and killed a, a lad of about 10 year old. Um, so looking back, it was clear that they were a UVF family and that the minute Catholics began demanding rights, we were no longer welcome. And my, my father's generation were really the last generation that kept their heads down. My generation- Kept their heads down. Kept their heads down. Yeah. Um, there's a saying in Ireland, um, uh, he stooped over so far his head's as low as a Larn Catholic. Larn is a really loyalist area, and if your head was as low as a Larn Catholic's, it meant you were almost on the ground. Um, so you learned all these things. They were said, they keep your head down, don't rock the boat. Yes. Don't be careful. Watch what you say. And, and just to clarify for our American listeners, loyalist means people who are uh, pr generally Protestant and they are fine with uh, being under British rule and Republicans or uh, nationalists are... Are people who want the reunification of, of Ireland. Ireland. And tend to be Catholic. And tend to be Catholic, yeah. Cult well, culturally Catholic, um, although again, it's not, it's not absolute. I mean, I know Protestant IRA men, you know. So that it's not really. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, there were a number in prison with us. Um, one was arrested along with my sister um, on a, an IRA operation to assassinate a police chief. Uh, he was Protestant, Harry Mains. His father was in the Orange Order, but he was in the IRA. He must have really hated his father. <laughs> I think that what happened was that um, the, I mean, the ones that I know were all Protestants who lived in nationalist areas. So their lived experience was of oppression from the state. Yes. Even though they were born Protestant. I see. Their experience was pretty much what our experience was. So they... So um, they got to experience something other than the stereotype. The stereotypes. Different sides of the wall yeah. feed each other. Feed each other, that's yeah. right. What were some of the stereotypes that, that you had of Protestants that you don't longer hold? Um, well, when we were growing up, for example, the... Belfast City Seminary, we would run past it because we were afraid that it was unholy. And it turns out they're Catholics, Protestant Jews and dissenters buried on it. But we were always told it was a Protestant cemetery. And so we would cross the road to avoid going past it because it was, it was evil. I, I, don't, I, have no, I have no recollection of anyone actually telling me that. But I do know that I firmly believe that, that you had to cross the road in case. Um, is that the, the cemetery where there's an underground wall separate? Yeah, it's a wall se separating. separates the Catholics and the Protestants. Yes. Yeah. Just in case they want to dig. That's you never know, they're <laughs> sneaky. Well, the thing I was worried about there was that you would get 
Catholic worms and Protestant worms breeding. <laughs> you don't know what they produce. You know. And then you've got chaos. <laughs> you have absolute chaos. Yes. But it is, I mean, a lot of people doubted the veracity of that story until um, the city council, Tom Hartley, who um, has done a history of the cemetery, he got them to open it and there it was, three foot wide, nine foot deep, a red brick wall. <laughs> <laughs> No sex, please. Yes. We're, we're different denominations. <laughs> uh, so, let's... Let, but I know stereotypes, so you were... I mean, they were dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, they were a total threat to us. Um, if, you, if they caught you, um, you'd be beaten. And... Um, see, for example... When was we, this as a child or as an adult? Oh, as because a child. Okay, because as an adult, that was true. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. But it was also true as a child. Uh, I mean, there were very few periods when, especially around July, Catholics would say, watch them, their blood's up. Because of the July 12th uh, 12th orange celebration? People who would talk to other people all year round would suddenly not talk. And um, I remember very young, I was living on the Grammys at the time, I must have been five, and I was given a half penny, which would have bought you a thing called a lucky man, which was a, a sugary teeth destroyer, <laughs> which had a, another half penny hidden in every so many. So you could, so it was called a lucky man. But you eat these things. So I went to the shop on Alliance Avenue and tap on the counter as children do, and the man started abusing me and t- take yourself off to where you come from. And I, I, I absolutely no idea what it was about. And I went back to my granny's and she says, oh, you shouldn't have went to that shop. Go to the shop at Tampa Brampton Park. His blood's up over the 12th. Wow. He was a Protestant shop. I was five. Hmm. Couldn't have been any more than five. It's interesting, too, that why their blood would be up over remembering a war they won. Yeah, well, I think that the, their blood's up because they um, they not only are celebrating the fact that they won a battle which is another story entirely because it's a, it's a, a battle that had very little to do with Ireland but um, they celebrate the 12th but also it was a time for reinforcing crappies lie down that was a crappies lie down and what, is, what does that mean? in the 1798 rebellion the Irish soldiers cropped their head along the top that was the style of haircut after the French revolution mm-hmm. And they coloured it, and the Protestant militias would shout, crappies lie down, and they still they, they still would shout that, even to this day. And the other thing, they call us tags, that's a pejorative term, and that comes from apparently a, an obscure reference to the Bible, uh, or the letter of St. Timothy mm. in the Bible. So a Timothy, in Irish, Timothy is Thai. That's how it's pronounced. I see. So they had mispronounced the Irish word tag as yeah. tag. And, and so that, was that the one that, uh, Wolf Tone? Uh, Wolf Tone was involved in the 1788 Rebellion. And yeah. he was kind of the, the first historical Irish figure to say, you know, let's gather arms and yep. stop this shit. Yeah. Um, well, Catholics at that time could not hold land. And, and could not hold land. Um, you could you um, if you were on a horse, um, you couldn't hold a horse to the value of more than five pounds. So a Protestant could buy your horse off you and insist that you take five pound for it. Um, you also um, under the Pendleha or the penal laws, 
um, a Catholic priest who could be handed over to the authorities to be hung. And I think it was a three or five pound reward for handing over a priest. So Catholic mass had to be said in valleys and glens and mountains. So it was against the law to practice the Catholic faith. Also, everybody had to pay tithes to a Protestant minister, even though nobody yeah. believed in him. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that, that type of... Um, there's a great poem um, was, that was penned anonymously, yeah. which kind of sums that up, and it says... Um, Na tractor of Anister Galda, nor a Kraju gan van gan vri, mar neil mar won clock, da hampel, ach myrl ye onri ri, which means um, don't speak of the alien minister or of his religion without meaning or faith. The foundation stone of his temple is the bollocks of Henry VIII. So. And, and, and explain to uh, our, our listeners the importance of Henry VIII. Well, Henry VIII was the English king who established the established church. And the reason he established it was that he broke away from Rome because the Pope wouldn't allow him to divorce. Um, he wanted an heir and he would stop at nothing. He beheaded two of his wives and divorced others. And, <laughs> and the Church of England. And the Church of England. He, became, he, he got, uh, nominated himself head of the Church of England. And the current British Queen is still head of the Church of England. And in Ireland, that's called the Church of Ireland. <laughs> so, now that we've set the, the table for the anger, what are the sparks then that ignite the troubles? Well, the, the, the real spark and what is classed as the beginning of the troubles starts in um, January 1969. So the, throughout 1968, civil rights protests had been increasing and increasing. Uh, a pr civil rights march was battened off the streets in Derry in a very bloody and violent fashion by the RUC. So there were lines of peaceful protesters beaten into the ground. Television had just arrived. Television was a rarity in Ireland until the late 60s. I would think the first television on our street was about 1965. So this thing was broadcasting around the world what ha what was happening. And before that, nobody knew. Um, this was called England's Forgotten Backyard. So it's over there, and leave it alone, let them sort it out. And so this violence uh, burst onto the scene. The Unionist MP, um, or the Unionist Prime Minister, began what was called... Um, Ulster at the crossroads, so he makes a big speech. He says, please, no, mo no more marching. We look at the aggravation, we look at the issues, we look at the complaints. And the, the demands were very simple. One man, one vote. They weren't even asking for vote for women. One man, one vote. The right to housing and the right to a job. That, that, those were the three demands of the civil rights. And they were very... So there was no United Ireland agenda. There was no a bigger agenda than looking rights within the northern state. But the extreme wing of unionism tried to unseat the appeaser, as they seen him. And simultaneously, uh, people like the Reverend Ian Paisley, uh, accompanied by Major Bunting, um, they were two of the main figures. Bunting's son ended up being a member of the INLA and was shot dead by loyalists. 
he was a member of the what? INLA, the Irish National Liberation Army. They were a Republican splinter group. Oh, okay. So, um, Ronnie Bunting, he was called. So his father was the main leader of fundamentalist unionism, and he became one of the leaders of very radical left-wing republicanism. So, That's an uncomfortable topic uh, around the dinner uh, table. Around the dinner table. How's the sun? <laughs> uh, I've just heard it's, it's actually been on earth. <clears throat> he sends his son. The son was one of the people that organized the march that I'm going to tell you about, which is Burntallet. So the very safe middle class nationalist said, okay, we'll have no more marches and let, let's see. If they give it, us the vote. If they give us the vote. Let's, let's calm things down. Students said no. No, we're marching. So they declared a march from Belfast to Derry. Um, and it turned out to be, um, I don't know if it was a mistake, but it, it turned out to be a catastrophe because the whole way from Belfast along, they were ambushed, not just by loyalists, but by policemen in uniform who were beating them into the ground. And it reached a climax in a place called Burntallet, Burntallet Bridge, which is just on the outskirts of Derry. And when they reached Burntallet, there were thousands of orange men and policemen who literally just beat them all down into the river. And the, ma the march had to be abandoned. They couldn't march anymore because to get from Burntallet to Derry was through unionism. Mm -hmm. So they scattered, but then the remnants of them began to arrive in the Derry, bloodied and battered, and they were greeted by thousands. That August was the annual Apprentice Boys March in Derry. So they march on the 12th of August. That kicked off the Battle of the Bogside, that the entire Bogside community just revolted against the state. And for a full week, there were running battles with petrol bombs fighting the police. The police just kept sending them waves and waves to try and enter the Bogside. And in Belfast, people watching on at this were... were on what's happening on the night of the 14th of August and the 15th of August in Belfast loyalists began to move in huge columns from the Shankill Road down onto the falls there's images of them with prams filled with petrol bombs and they're just petrol bombing houses as they come and on those two nights 10,000 Catholics were burned out of their homes and ended up in Andersonstown and safer areas that was really the that was the troubles. Now, having said that, the IRA didn't kill the first British soldier until 1971. So there was a huge period in which the the violence was um, very sporadic. Um, the IRA a didn't have the capacity. Uh, you didn't have weapons at that didn't point. Have the weapons, so. For example, the night that the Falls Road was burned, um, the, the schoolets in Comgalls, you can see they were on the roof, the IRA were on the roof of that and the Loyalists were burning down all the streets towards them. And the IRA had um, one um, revolver, an old Second World War Thompson machine gun and a carbine, an M1 carbine from Korea. That, that was the entire extent of their arsenal. That's like a cartoon. It's <laughs> a complete cartoon. And when the British... But when the Loyalists were burning, Shoreland armoured cars driven by the RUC came down ahead of them. And when the IRA were firing to repel them, they opened fire with 30-30 Browning machine guns. 
and um, the first two casualties of the troubles as they're they're known occurred that night and it was a, a young lad called Rooney who was nine years old and he was cut in half by a machine gun lying on his bed oh in, yeah it, it, in by the school yep. right yep I saw the bullet holes the yesterday bullet holes in the uh, wall yeah. huge and the other one is um, a British soldier a Catholic British soldier who was home on leave he was shot they were the two victims the other one who was shot dead was um, a member of the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Course. He was shot in Dover, no, Percy Street, and he was called Herbert Roy. And he was shot by the IRA from the roof of that school. For, for the listeners, sometimes if, if uh, we're mentioning uh, Shank Hill Road or Falls Road, there there's a peace wall that they run parallel and there's a peace wall that runs between the two of them. And Shank Hill Road is the Protestant side of the peace wall and Falls Road is the Catholic side of the, the peace wall. But the peace wall didn't exist, it didn't in, exist when we're then. talking no. a, about it. But just so people can visually kind of picture when we're talking about Shank Hill or, or well, Falls you- Road. Picture Shanklin Falls are two parallel roads which are connected by long streets. So you have these long streets between these two main roads and right through the centre of it. Once you got halfway down those streets, they became Catholic. And when they went up, they were Protestant. So from one side down, they burned them all out. They were just pushing the Catholics back. All the way to Falls Road. All the way to Falls Road. And um, that becomes what what becomes the peace and it's still there so there, is there still just burned out houses there no the uh, if you come on the nationalist side the chronic housing shortage and nationalism means that the houses are built right up to the peace wall mm. if you go on to the protestant side there's no man's land so at the start of the troubles the population of the shankle was probably in and around 40 to fifty thousand. it's now down to ten thousand. Say that. Say that again. The, whose houses were built right up to the peace wall? Not, no, nigh. The Catholic houses are built right up against it because there was a shortage of housing. Because there's no housing in the Catholic areas, you can't you can't get housed. I say because you they couldn't afford it, or they weren't. Uh, they won't build. They won't build social housing. They won't build it, and it, even in areas like North Belfast, for example, with an expanding Catholic population. They've built more peace walls in North Belfast after the Troubles than were built during the Troubles. And the reason for that is Loyalists will not allow Catholics to, to occupy spare, spare land. Mm. They, they simply won't allow it to be built. There will be riots or be confrontations. Mm. So you, you have in Catholic areas in Belfast chronic housing shortage and a demand for space and consequently higher rents. Whereas in loyalist areas, you have huge swathes of public housing land empty. There's so much to take in. Let's go to, because I, I want to begin to emotionally understand what is going on inside one person yeah. or many people yeah. as as you're taking up arms or you're fighting politically or whatever it is that, yeah. that somebody is doing. So... Um, you lied about your age yep. to, to get in. You yep. were 15, 17? What were you? I, I was only uh, 15 when I went into the IRA. You're supposed to be 17. But I'd already been in the junior IRA um, since I was 10. 
So I had made, I know this sounds crazy, but I had made a conscious decision at the age of 10 that I had to fight the state, that the state here was corrupt to the core and that we weren't going to go down on our knees, that we mm. were going to fight it. And so you were preparing all along to fight the state. Um, by the time I was 14, I was blown up um, for the first time. Um, what happened? What we, um, I was never convicted of it, so it was an accidental explosion. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, we said that we found some material in a field and that it exploded and blew us up. Mm. So there were basically nail bombs which detonated and I was lucky, I was at the centre of the blast and one of my friends was a bit further out. He got badly injured, he, his whole leg was smashed and it threw him backwards up over a hedge. I just got blue. It's, explosions are strange things. Somebody who's closer to the explosion can sometimes be safer than someone who's further away hmm. because it's the shock waves right. that, that do the damage and also the debris. Yeah. So um, the only way I can explain it is that everything was going in super high speed, but it was in slow motion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's very contradictory. So everything's happening but then you're watching all this happening and literally I can still see the air vibrating as it's coming toward and there's the flash of, of heat and you feel the heat simultaneously there's this flash and I just realise that my clothes are being blown off me and I'm falling backwards and I was unconscious for a while when my nose was completely packed with muck and soil and my eyes I couldn't really see and um, that was it. it got blew up. <laughs> and you were 14? 14, yeah. But I, I remember in the midst of it going, wow, <laughs> I'm somersaulting. And I, my friend was somersaulting backwards over a, a hawthorn hedge. We obviously weren't worried about um, diseases because... The guy who rescued me threw me into the back of an old Ford Cortina estate, which had bags of manure on it, <laughs> to take us to the hospital. So we were obviously immune. You know, one of the things I I don't want to do, even though some people will probably be upset that I don't ask these questions, is I I don't want to um, turn this interview into you know, holding someone to some type of moral uh, standard and, yep. and saying, but, you know, they were innocent people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I may ask that at some point, but that's not the, there are other podcasts yep. for that. And my personal view is that, you know, the, the old trope that one man's terrorist is another man's yep. freedom fighter. I... While I disagree with many of the means the IRA used, um, I have always seen them as as freedom fighters because they were left no other choice. They had no other way to fight. Yeah. Well, I, 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 uh, I mean, in, in relation to the morality of armed struggles, if you decide that you're going to engage in an armed struggle and you engage in that armed struggle, you are collectively responsible for all of the actions that that armed struggle entails. I, 
there were, in my view, two um, tactics that the IRA employed which were totally wrong. The first one was the targeting of Protestants, which happened in the mid-70s. So when loyalists were bombing Catholic bars and shooting Catholics, they retaliated by shooting Protestants. It was wrong, it shouldn't have happened, and uh, it was uh, counterproductive in my view. It was also, in my view, um, the result of the sectarian poison that permeates a society. And that's on all sides. The, the problem is that um, all too often nationals will go, yeah, sectarianism's terrible. Those, those unionists and their sectarianism, they go, mm, well, you know. On the loyalist side, they were going, the IRA are sectarian because they more, yeah. So, I mean, no one can wash their hands of it. Everyone here is imbued with that tribal hatred because of British policy. When you British were policy to create it. When you were putting the nail bomb together, that was not intended uh, to hurt innocent people. That was no, meant no, to no. destroy property. No, it was meant to kill British soldiers. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, 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 I said there were two things. That was the first. And the second, which I thought was hugely reprehensible, was the decision to disappear people who were informers. So there were a number of people who were taken away and buried in unmarked graves. Some of their bodies have been recovered and some haven't. That was an abomination. It shouldn't have happened. And um, the, the decision to... I have no problem with executing informers. People who informed, in my view, had carried out an act of treason. Mm -hmm. And if found guilty, they should be executed. But if you are taken a stand that someone deserves to be executed, you should stand over your decision. And not just hide the truth and of what happened. not hide the truth of what happened. So that policy of hiding bodies mm -hmm. was wrong and, and should. But again, that, that's all that's okay for me to say sitting here. I wasn't in the position of the person who made that decision, so I, I don't know what they were, mm -hmm. what they were thinking. But in absolute terms, shouldn't have happened. Was wrong. And the families were left with no closure of any kind. Not that being able to bury a body is any great comfort to somebody who has an empty chair in their house. The other thing I, I um, am absolutely clear on is that you can't try and read back at 40 years distance and say, well, we could... I am absolutely convinced that the nationalist community didn't have an option. Um, that the minute we began to demand change of a very moderate type, we were beaten into the ground. Yeah. And the only way that we could respond to that was by organising ourselves. And once that spiral begins, people begin to organise, the state begins to repress, then that's, that's where conflicts come out of. Now, the um, the moral question is is very straightforward for me. Uh, I mean, I think that every person um, needs to live with the choices to make, and um, it really isn't good enough, particularly in the sense that hypocrites who run this state and who see no difficulty in the bombing of 
children and men and women at weddings in Afghanistan or Iraq are going to call me a terrorist. Oh, come on. Like, are you real? And people who will terrorise people with the violence of exploitative capitalism, who will force people uh, to work 15 hours a day, mm -hmm. uh, basically to put a food on the table, those people have no right to judge. Yeah, I, I often think of the person who watches an NFL player kneeling during the national anthem and saying it's obscene, as if someone being shot who is unarmed isn't obscene. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Let's talk about um, being jailed and and that experience. That's one of the things that fascinates me the most about the, the, the history of the IRA is the strength that was gathered during the most difficult times in the, in the movement. And you were, I mean, you had a front row seat. You were in... H block with Bobby Sands, who yeah. is uh, kind of the would it be fair to say the Martin Luther King kind yeah. of of. Uh well, I think that if you, if you look at, um, I'm always very suspect of um, the cult of the personality. Yeah. I think it's a dangerous thing. I think that uh, it was in Taoist um, philosophy that the description of a good leader is that leader who is able to say, in all honesty, the people have done it for themselves. You know, so if you're that type of leader who is, and I, I'm not saying Bobby Sands was, right. the media creates this, the media does this, it's, it's part of the human condition, we need a, an individual to admire and to look up to. And hopefully with good hair. Hopefully a good hair. <laughs> he had a nice head of hair, didn't he? <laughs> some guy. Yes. But, <laughs> but he had that 70s collar. It's really a shame that that had to be. He well, had to be. <laughs> that was the 70s. Oh, my <laughs> yes, God. God. Thank yeah. God you couldn't see the rest of his leisure suit <laughs> in, in that picture. So um, that was taken on the cages. Yes, I mean, I, I for me, the, the H blocks were really the fulcrum in which the future direction of the struggle was forged. And we will be back uh, in just a moment to hear about uh, the H-Blocks. Um, but before we do that, I want to give a shout out to Blinkist, who is a new sponsor of ours. Uh, if you're like me, the list of books you want to read is never ending and there's no time to read them all, thankfully. Blinkist has solved this problem once and for all. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. So you can read or listen to them and expand your knowledge all in under 15 minutes, anywhere, anytime from your phone. I checked out uh, the biography of Leonardo... <laughs> It's a tough, tough name to say. Leonardo da Vinci uh, by uh, Walter Isaacson. And the Blinkist uh, version of this I read in about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And I learned so much about his life, what made his paintings great, what his passions were, how he synthesized uh, his curiosity in different uh, areas of art and science into the genius creations that we know him for today. So right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for you guys. Go to Blinkist.com slash mental 
to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash mental to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash mental. I want to also uh, give a shout out to a new sponsor. Uh, it's a new podcast uh, called I Love You, But I Hate Your Politics. Uh, let's be honest. Has there ever been more tension between family members and friends these days than political beliefs? Um, most of us they have no idea what to do when those awkward conversations come up. Um, maybe you get in a debate with somebody you love on Facebook, uh, and you just cut that person out of your life. Is that always the best idea to do that? Or maybe you're dreading going home for the, for the holidays because you know there's going to be a blow up with a, with a family member. Well, I love you, but I hate your politics is the remedy for that awkwardness and anxiety. Therapist Jeannie Safer uses her expertise to help couples and friends who care about each other but just can't see eye to eye on political issues. She'll help you find empathy and communicate better with your loved ones. So stop unfriending all your cousins. Just find I Love You But I Hate Your Politics wherever, you're, wherever you listen to podcasts and hit subscribe. And I want to give some love to our returning sponsor, Calm. Uh, let's be honest. We are stressed. We are anxious. Anxious? We are anxious. Uh, and we always need more tools to cope and for me to sleep better. And you guys should check out Calm. It's the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It gives you the tools you need to live a happier, healthy, and more mindful life. Just five minutes of Calm can change your whole day. It was named Apple's 2017 app of the year. That's no small feat. So go to calm.com slash mental and get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programs like guided meditations on anxiety, stress, focus, and relationships with a brand new meditation each day called the Daily Calm. And another thing that the Calm app has that I really love are the sleep stories. I believe I, I mentioned it on last week's uh, podcast, the story that Stephen Fry narrates about a field of lavender in France, which you would think, how could that possibly be interesting? Listen to it. It, it calmed me so much. I was floating in and out of consciousness listening to it. So check it out. For a limited time, you guys you listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. It includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. So get started today at calm.com slash mental. That's calm.com slash mental. And now back to uh, the interview with Jake. Um, in the mid-1970s, we were coming out of a disastrous ceasefire. Um, a new northern young IRA leadership was assuming control um, nationally. The old guard were, were gradually uh, given way. In the cages of Long Cash, for example, there were very different views within the movement. So I had to apply through the IRA education officer. This was when we had political status to get books out of a library. So I asked to get uh, Das Kapital and the Grundrisse. 
and he sent for me for an interview and said, why do you want these books? I said, to read them. <laughs> and he said, well, I understand you want to read them. I said, yeah. He says, but will you be promoting communism and communist ideology and literature after you read them? I says, how would I know? I haven't read them. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was one of these, and he says, well, I'm warning you, you're not allowed to promote communism. And I says, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> And for the uh, listeners, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, prior to the the uh, second hunger strike, uh, people who were captured and jailed that were part of the IRA were given political status, meaning that they were treated different than a uh, criminal who yep. robbed a robbed a store. Yep. You were able to wear your own clothes. You were able to m- mix freely, and Organize. yes, you yes, you were still in jail, but it was it was well, a, it was almost like when the mob would go to jail, yeah. you know, in Goodfellas. Yeah, you you well, had well, privileges that the average ours person. were very straightforward. I mean, we were inside Nissan compounds. Mm-hmm. So barbed wire f- compounds with four Nissan huts, really like Second World War concentration camps. That's what we were in. And inside the wire, we were in absolute control. So we carried out education classes, political lectures, bombing lectures, gun lectures, everything. The full gamut went on behind the wire. We also did, no IRA prisoner was allowed to be um, idle. So you either had to work, you had to make handicrafts, you had to clean huts, paint huts, maintain discipline, or you had to educate yourself. So you had no choice, you had to. And I remember it was really funny, I I taught remedial English Mm -hmm. to prisoners who had come in who had no basic education. And there was one guy in particular, and he used to hide at the start of every class. Mm-hmm. I used to, when I eventually found him, I'd say, look, why, you can't hide, you're in a jail. I'm eventually going to find you, and you have to come to the class. But he, he did it all, that he just avoided the class. Like Boy, I bet he hated Gaelic. He hated Irish. <laughs> uh, you were teaching Irish or English? I was teaching both. I was teaching okay. Irish, but in this class it was remedial English, teaching remedial English. Okay. Um, the Irish classes were voluntary, mm-hmm. um, but education classes were compulsory. Mm-hmm. You had to attend something, whether it be geography, history, anything. There were all sorts of subjects on offer, but they were all, we were self-taught. Cages... 1976, anyone arrested after the 1st of March 1976 lost their political status. So I come out of prison in April 77, and I was re-arrested in May 77. So from being in the cages, I was straight under the H-blocks. On your arrival in the H-blocks on sentencing, um, you arrived into a, basically a, a, a row of cubicles with wooden doors on them and you're put in the wooden cubicle one of the screws who came that's a nickname for the uh, prison warders prison wardens one of the screws who came to the door was one of the screws I knew from the cages and he opened the door and he said the shoe's on the other foot now no political status here we're going to be back so they they went away and they came back there were five or six of them and they had a prison uniform and they said to me strip and I refused, so they stripped me, forcibly stripped me, and um, said, put on the uniform. I just didn't speak. And so they they basically battered me and then trailed me by the hair naked 
across the reception, threw me into a van and took me to the H-blocks. And when you come to the H-blocks, you're in a blacked out van, so you can't really see any. We've no idea about the H-blocks other than what we're hearing. It's terrible. People are being tortured. There's a, a, so we didn't know what they expect. We simply knew that we weren't going to wear a prison uniform because we had decided that if we accepted the status of criminals, it would damage not just us and our integrity, but it would damage the entire struggle. So we decided we weren't going to, to do it. So the, the van backs up. There are a set of double doors uh, covered by an iron grill two wooden doors inside and the van would back up and the doors would open and we would be taken out and through through the grills there was a second set of grills and you're right in this rectangular space and um, there were maybe about 12 screws in total around the, the space so they start pushing and prodding and slapping you about put the uniform on it was all the usual nonsense um, and they said you have to go in and see the governor so I was thrown into this, just a room off the rectangle, and there was this guy in a suit sitting behind a desk, and the screws are punching me and slapping me, and put your hands by the side and call the governor, sir. You're standing there naked, and, and just ignoring them as best you can. You're getting slapped in the back of the head. And um, in the middle of all this, the governor says, um, Officer, would you put the charge to the prisoner? So you're standing in this screw turns around and says um, um, prisoner number 289 would you put on your prison clothes and go to your prison work and I just stood and the governor says uh, in the absence of a, of a response from the prisoner can you please enter a plea of not guilty on his behalf and another screw goes I enter a plea of not guilty on his behalf and the governor said and, and this guy goes um, right um, so is there any other evidence and the screw says, no, I've, I've asked the prisoner to put on his prison clothes and go to work, and he's refused. Okay, in light of the evidence before me, he says, I award you three days cellular confinement, three days loss of bed clothes, 14 days loss of privileges, 14 days loss of radio, 14 days loss of television, 14 days loss of reading material, 14 days loss of association, and I make a further award of 14 days loss of remission which meant that for every 14 days you were in, an extra 14 days was on your sentence. So <laughs> I was then trailed out and beaten and run. And they would continue with that charade every two weeks when we were on the blanket. And we would... And, dis and describe uh, what on the blanket meant. On the blanket meant I was brought down um, inside a cell that you could take about five paces from the door to a barred window. Uh, at the back of the cell there were two heating pipes and uh, in the cell um, there were two mattresses on the floor, three grey blankets and a white linen towel and a water gallon, a gallon of water and a piss pot. Mm. That was the end, and a Babel, one Babel, the King James Revised Standard Version. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was what you had. The um, Once your door closed, that was you. You got out once a month for half an hour for a family visit and once a week at a, for an hour for mass. The rest of the time you were in your cell 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we were to stay like that for five years on the blanket. No exercise. No exercise. Well, you got what? exercise by walking five paces up and down the <laughs> cell. But that, that was it. 
Um, the other thing was that as the blanket protest began to gather pace and we escalated into a no-wash protest, um, we were smearing excrement on the walls. And by that stage, um, the, the reason for that was we refused to leave the cells because every time you were leaving the cell, you were being battered and beaten. And they were dumping your piss and shit and on you. throwing your shit onto you as you, as you walked out. Because you, you had to leave to, to empty your pot. You had to leave to empty pot. The, the pot. And as you went, normally, as soon as you walked out of your cell, the screw would fuck it up around you. And then you would get a beating. And, you know, so we just decided that's it. We're not leaving the fucking cells. And an order was given to not leave the cells, to slap out. So we, at that stage, the screws began to pour very heavy ammonia-based disinfectant into the cells and the effect of it was like CS gas it burned your eyes and burned your nostrils so we smashed the glass in the windows so we were left with four concrete pillars which were the bars of the cell and um, by 1978 we had all the windows broken and the temperature that year plummeted to minus 15 so we were naked in a cell with three blankets and a bitumen floor it was absolutely freezing. I never experienced cold like it in my life. You're, and, and you guys were called the blanket men because your your we, clothes were the blanket they gave you to sleep the, on. We, we wrapped the blanket around ourselves and that became the symbol of the protest, the blanket men. And there were also women in Armagh prison in a similar condition, but they didn't wear a blanket because they had their own clothes. They weren't forced to wear a prison uniform. Um, so Basically that, I remember the, I can't precisely pinpoint it, but I do know that somewhere in the back of my head I kept getting more and more conscious that I was beginning to hate the screws. And somewhere I was saying, don't go down that road. That, that way there lies ruin and disaster because you're not going to win that fight you'll 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 turn it on yourself you'll consume yourself with hatred so i just simply said look what i have to realize is we're waging a war against these people an armed struggle so they're not going to be nice to us yeah. <laughs> um but it, it was extremely difficult because i remember when they when they scalded us um in 1978 and the started about two o'clock in the afternoon. They come back after lunch. And normally, when the screws were away at lunch, they would take a drink. So we heard a lot of commotion uh, out on the wing and rattling of buckets. And the next thing, a cell opened and there was a scream. And we went, "What the?" F-? And the next thing, the guy shouted out in Irish. Um, the, the, the water's boiling mm. and so they were scalding prisoners with, with water and they worked their way down when they got to my cell I was at the end of the wing and the screw opened the door and he says to me you're the bastard giving the orders in this wing he says we're keeping you to the end and we're going to give you a special treat so they burned their way scalding people down two sides of the wing and um, so for the best part of must have been an hour I was landing in the cell, listening to this cell after cell, people being scalded and screaming. And I was mentally trying to psych myself up for it. So what I'd say to myself was, 
I'm not going to utter a sound. I'm not going to make. I'm not going to give them. I'm not going to dignify what they do with a response. And so I'm standing in the middle of the cell when they eventually got with a blanket pulled up round the back of my head and neck mm. to give me some protection. And the screw who had been there earlier says, "Pull the blanket off that bastard. I want them scalded properly." So they they tore the blanket off me and threw the water and I. I let out a scream that shook the entire cell. It was, the pain was indescribable, indescribable. And I could literally feel the blisters rising on the back of my neck, my ass, my legs, the back of my arms. And um, the screws just walked away. And five minutes later, one of them came back and he opened the door and he had a tin of germline, which is a an antiseptic cream and he threw it on the floor and he had five cigarettes in his hand and he handed me because you were never allowed so you handed me a mm. cigarette he says have yourself a wee smoke you deserve it after what you've been through and like, this guy's fucking schizophrenic wow he's just scalded me and yet somewhere in the midst of that yeah there's a it's, human it's probably so he could sleep with himself because he could sleep with himself yeah. yeah and I sort of that, that to me I went well Yes, because we're engaged in an armed struggle, we're constantly having to subdue our humanity. So the only way to survive this is to hold on to your humanity and to try and see, even in the worst of circumstances, the human in the screw. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they didn't wake up one morning to say to me, monsters. Right. So, so what do you do with that when you have to carry out a mission to go assassinate yep. someone is it because that is for the greater good of freedom whereas this would be a personal vendetta because that guy humiliated you yeah i think that i mean i i do believe that screws were legitimate targets they were targeted by the ira and they were targeted because they were in the front line of trying to break the struggle through breaking prisoners and also they were i mean these guys were were torturers they, I mean, they they were torturing naked fucking teenagers, you know. So they, um, but I think that when you when you're engaged in an armed struggle, you have to always be very calculating in what you're doing. You have to um, you have to be ruthless um, and. You will make all of your endeavours to kill the enemy. So that that's what armed struggles are. That's what struggles are. That's what wars are. That's what people are paid money and turned into soldiers and sent to places in Southeast Asia and to do. And I think that the the consequences of that for the individual um, are usually um, very, very deep-seated and that sometimes don't emerge for years and years and years. I mean, I um, I was active in the IRA and the Republican movement um, for the best part of 30 years. And in 1997, I decided that I disagreed with the strategy that was being pursued and I resigned. Um, and I literally went home. I didn't engage in any other political activity. At that stage, I thought that the IRA would split 
and go in on itself around the whole peace thing. I was absolutely convinced that armed struggle had run its course. I was absolutely convinced that there was a way to pursue the struggle without recourse to arms any longer. And so I was fully in favour of um, demilitarising the struggle. But I didn't think it was a good idea to begin a false peace process Mm -hmm. because the peace process that was begun allowed unionism to feel that it still occupied some moral high ground and that what this process was about was about teaching the IRA that they'd been bad boys and should put on sackcloth and ashes and be good boys. That wasn't what happened in the statelet. And the process is so flawed because that truth hasn't been faced up to. This conflict was always going to come. It was going to come because that was the nature of forcing two tribes to live in a small space with one tribe dominant. It was always going to to emerge as a conflict. And so if you want to deal with the conflict, there's a requirement for a fair bit of honesty. And the honesty, I mean, people will say, oh, well, we need to know all of the details of what happened to victims. Yeah, they were killed. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. they were killed by people who were pursuing various agendas. That's what happened. I mean, um, families... um, yes, are, are entitled to closure, and, but the entire political process has been hamstrung mm-hmm. by this dealing with, with victims because it hasn't been sorted. It has to be sorted. There, there has to be some way to, to tackle it head on. But you can't have a proper political process where one of the main protagonists, the people who constructed and kept the orange state alive, have the audacity to say that they won't go into um, power with Sinn Féin except that they'll hold their noses. I dare them. I mean, these are the people who perpetrated years of oppression, Mm -hmm. years of torture. These are the people who unleashed the state forces to shoot down eight-year-old girls and ten-year-old boys at point-blank range with plastic bullets and the dare to condemn the violence of the oppressed. I mean, that just... I find that intolerable. And I think that was the big flaw in the peace process. I thought that what the IRA should do was very simply say, we're dumping our arms. We're leaving the stage. And leave it. Leave the stage. And then let a proper process begin. But this, you had this, well, we'll turn a blind eye and we'll wink and we'll let, Mm -hmm. you know. And it was just a flawed process in my view. Maybe I'm wrong, and the people who, who followed that process are right, that we'll all work out right. in the end. But I think 20 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, the violence that fueled the struggle is there, still there in a very raw form, mm-hmm. and it doesn't take very much to ignite it. Now, it's it's uh, more than a few people that I've talked to since I've been here, especially with uh, what's going to happen with Brexit and yeah. possible borders being reinstalled uh, between Northern Ireland and uh, the the state of Ireland. Uh, apparently, has a lot of people worried. But but I want to uh, move things back to the H block and the hunger strike. And what are your memories? Uh, and what were some 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 moments? there that you thought I, d- I don't know if if I can continue or where y- you felt at your lowest well m- my lowest was um, 
Well, the, the first thing was I, every day was a battle. Because this place was, I think, it was no picnic. Mm-hmm. You know, there was random violence. You were always on edge. You were always stressed. You didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, you were in appalling conditions. The food was, was, was shit. You had nothing to read, nothing to do, only available. So quite early on, I, I adopted a strategy that I spent as little time in the cell as possible. So I would get up in the morning. Um, I would read a bit of the Bible. I would eat the breakfast, I would watch the crows going to raid some farmer's field, um, I would pace the cell for a while, and then in my head I would follow the crows and go for a walk alongside a river, and every time I got interrupted and brought back to the cell, I'd start to walk again, and I'd do that. So I spent a lot of time outside of the, the prison mm-hmm. in your head. Um, they can't imprison a spirit. You just can physically imprison you, but they can't imprison your spirit. And no matter what they do, that's that's what'll keep you going. Um, so we also were um, hugely involved in, in very vociferous debates about the way forward and what we needed to do. And um, we constantly prisoners never live in the present; they always live in the past. They're always talking about what they did on the outside. And, what they're going to do when they get back out. Nobody ever talks about the here and now because it's too horrible to yeah. contemplate. So um, I got through it by... Um, when I describe the the conditions as absolutely appalling, the other... The converse it, it was the most exciting time intellectually in my life. People were, were very debating very deep issues with great honesty and integrity. And also there was a bond of comradeship among the prisoners, which was unbreakable. Um, and even today, you know, 35 years later, a lot of blanket men I didn't meet. You never knew what they looked like. So you'll meet them somewhere and somebody would say, I don't know who this is, no, and you hear the name, oh Jesus, and you know, you know the name, you know who their family, you know all about them, but you've never actually seen them face to face, and your first impulse um, is just to hug each other, mm. just a big quiet hug, and that's it, and that's very common among prisoners. The other thing was, I, I would overthink things at the time, but in the jail, because it's an all-male atmosphere, no one touches each other. Because it's um, it's you're afraid of any form of intimacy in case I don't know in case somebody's a sexual threat or whatever. But there is a complete reluctance. Nobody hugged in prison. Not in prison. No. It, was that something that was spoken out loud, or it was just understood? No, it was just understood. It just happened, and so. That that's how it was. It was my experience of it. Would you think that was homophobia? Or? It was, I don't think it was homophobia as such. I mean, because I mean, I don't think that in general, IRA volunteers were homophobic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they don't have issues with with. I mean, your sexuality doesn't affect your operational capacity. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I don't. But I do think it's probably within the male psyche. Mm-hmm. There's that genuine fear that if you're robbed of the opposite sex, 
you'll somehow be lured to become mm -hmm. it's ridiculous you can't change your sexuality right yes <laughs> but i mean it, it, even though it's not logical yes and you were teenagers, I'm as, a teenager. A, as well and i imagine the biggest fear being in there is that your you know fellow prisoners would view you as weak or yeah. soft soft i think it's that that's more that than than the sexuality you um not just our society was very macho. My upbringing was very macho. My father was, I'd dry your eyes and get on with it. Sure, it's only a cut and you'd be pissing blood. Get out there. Tap yeah. crying like a wee girl. So all that. You're constantly conditioned to be macho. You know, that, that's the messages you're getting all the time. Big boys don't cry. Dry your eyes. Shut up. Get on with it. You know, and so you're constantly getting that in society in general. And that's doubly reinforced within a military culture and ironically the one time you need a hug the most <laughs> is when you can't get it yeah is <laughs> is when you're in prison yeah. and your shit's on the wall yeah. and it's freezing and all you have is a blanket and yeah. the only heat is scalding water being thrown on your yeah. back oh it's a one of the ironies of life yeah but um the other thing that that my my very lowest moment and food was very important because they starved us. They literally... Before you starved yourselves. Before we starved ourselves. And the hunger strikes to 10 men to death. But they starved us, so they, they, they kept their rations right uh, at a minimum. So you're always hungry and you're always cold. And when between the first and the second hunger strikes, our wing come off the blanket protest and were phased into, or often a wise protest, and were phased into cells with furniture. And Bobby Sands was in a negotiation with the prison. That collapsed in January. So we destroyed the cells, we wrecked the cells. And they come in in the early hours, maybe between midnight and two o'clock, but it was late on. And they moved us all, they battered us um, out in the vans and moved us all to um, another block. And they threw us in the cells, which had pools of water on the floor, where they'd been cleaning the, the shit of the walls. And um, they locked the door. And you were on your own. They kept us all in single cells. And so I was freezing. It was bitterly cold. That January was like 78 and the 79 was absolutely freezing. And the next year from 80 and the 81 was the same. January was extremely cold. So we were moved in early January, um, and I was, you're trying to get your, my feet were purple, so you're trying to get yourself through this. We'd absolutely nothing, no bed, no blankets, nothing, naked in the cell, water, freezing, no windows. And uh, so uh, you're, you're pacing yourself going, right, so we were singing and talking and trying to keep morale up. But then everybody gets very quiet about four or five in the morning and it's the coldest part of the day so the temperature's dropping again and you're just exhausted you can't get to sleep you can't lie down in the puddle and try and sleep it's just not going to work so we're walking the cells and the next morning the screws arrived and I went fuck blankets we'll get blankets you know we'll be able to use one of the blankets to dry the floor and we'll be able to lie down and no blankets no mattress so we don't ever complain. They threw the, the, the breakfast in. The breakfast was tea, a, a bowl of cornflakes and bread, which was thrown into the cornflakes so the bread was soaking. 
so you only were able to salvage mm-hmm. the crust. Then uh, lunchtime, said they'll, they'll have to give us the blankets at lunch. No, lunchtime came and gone, no blankets, no mattresses, and um, I just, I just, I can't fucking do this. We'll survey the tea time, so tea time came and the boys at the table wing shouted, fuck, it's corned beef and chips, which was a really great dinner because you got, it was tasty, it was a mm. nice meal. And they opened my door and the screw had the blue plate and there was a square of corned beef and no chips. I just went, oh fuck. They closed the door so I sat down to eat it and I lifted the corned beef and the screw shouted and now don't be feeling you're being persecuted. There's two chips below the corned beef and there were there were two chips. And I just felt like screaming at the top of my voice and just totally almost lost it. Oh, um, I just had to refocus. What what had happened to the food? He had, they didn't give me any chips, but they hid two chips under the corned beef uh-huh. and then shouted in, you're not being persecuted, you got some chips. No, and uh-huh. it was just, it was just like a, a body blow, it's just huge. Oh. So eventually, um, I just pulled myself together as you always do and just went, right, okay, corned beef and two chips, that's what we're having. So we ate the corned beef and two chips up to the window and started shouting out, what are you ragging, when they think are going to get these clothes? And that was it. So you just, everybody was on the same boat. But that was probably the lowest point. Uh, just, it's, it's when you endure to a point where your, your mind has said, this is going to get better, there's going to be a wee, and so I'd, I'd kind of foolishly, psychologically prepared myself for a plate of chips, and when they weren't there, it was, it was just, all of the shit that you'd been through the whole night was focused on, on yeah. the lack of chips. Yeah. But, no. I, I, I can't imagine the depths of, of hopelessness when, when you're in a situation like that. Yeah. Uh, were you... Still in H block when um, people were dying from the oh, hunger yeah, strike. Yeah, 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 right through the hunger strike. What, um, what was that? Awful. Um, the um, the thing with I remember Bobby coming back when the first hunger strike ended, and he said very clearly, "Look, we're going to try and negotiate this." He says, "But see, with the pressure of the hunger strike on, I think the Brits will." We'll just remake, we'll do nothing. He said, um, there's going to be a second hunger strike. He was talking to me and Burke McFarland. We were in a cell next door. He says, there's going to be a second hunger strike. I'm leading it and I'm going to die. He says, it'll take at least me to die before the Brits will move, he says, because after the first hunger strike. So he consciously decided to die. Um, He was 26 uh, years and nine months old we'd made a decision he was going to die um, what do you remember thinking or feeling in that moment when he said that uh, can I die will I be prepared to die will, will I be strong enough I know Bobby will, will but what about the rest of you so you started thinking about the hunger strike and whether or not you're going to take part in it because it, they chose the the commander's Chose the leadership you, chose who would be. No, you volunteered. Oh, you did. You had to volunteer, 
And uh, once you volunteered, um, your name had to be submitted to the IRA structures in the, in the prison who would make a decision whether or not your name would be forwarded to the Army Council. And if your name went to the Army Council, the Army Council had the final say as to whether or not you would be allowed to hunger strike. So, But more people a applied a hundred than, people, than were ch chosen. A hundred people had applied. And when the hunger strike ended, there were still... Um, 60 plus people waiting to go on hunger strike um, and, and one of them died from complications from from his body being so emaciated even though he, the Martin Horson yeah Martin Horson died after 47 days um, which was prematurely for for a hunger striker most hunger strikers lasted 56 mm -hmm. on the longest um, hunger striker who survived was Lawrence McKeown, who was 72 days on hunger strike and survived. Good Lord. <laughs> Good Lord. That's a long time. What What do you remember as, as um, was Bobby in the cell next to you? They put Bobby, once he went on hunger strike, they put him in the cell 26, which was directly across from me. And they kept him there on for 21 days and then they moved him to the prison hospital. So when he was uh, on the hunger strike, um, Philip Rooney, from, who was next door to him, he would begin cleaning the cell out. Uh, they would let us in now and again to change his water and stuff, so you'd be talking to him. He, um, on his ninth day on hunger strike, he turned 27, and um, the, um, at night I, I would shout, the communications from our block over to the other blocks and over to the other wings and we shouted in Irish so I, I shouted over to the boys in H or in A wing all the messages and a guy called Spato Devine he was shouting back and he says oh um, Rudder Wine Allah something them in too so he's shouting just one more thing before you go and um, 40 voices just shouted out Brayla Hannah Bobby happy birthday Bobby and um we had a concert, we sang songs that whole night. Um, he got up to the door and sang, made a wee bit of a speech. And uh, I knew it was the last time we were going to see him. And, um, it was emotional then. Um, well, it's emotional now, even though it's years later. If, if you could go back in time and say something to him or to your younger self what? in those moments what would adult you say to either Bobby or you or anyone in the block provided you maintain your integrity nothing can destroy you it can diminish you but nothing can destroy you stay true to yourself that, that would be it it wouldn't I wouldn't have any pearls or wisdom flying yes. <laughs> back. Would you say anything to Bobby? Um, just what was said at the time, Slan comrade. Um, goodbye. Goodbye. I just feel um, indescribably indebted uh, to you for the sacrifice you're making. And 
I don't know, uh, even though I've volunteered, for, I don't know when those are going to die until they're at the point of death. It's one of those unknowables. You, you, you can tell yourself you'll die, you can, but to actually, um, I remember back coming back and um, I think I'd got the same, um, he'd only dares to live at this stage. And Pick was the OC, and um, he walked in this cell, and he said that Bobby's hearing was was obviously very acute, but he, he lifted his hand up, and he says, "Shouldn't toss it back, Cara? Is that you, Pick, mate?" And he says, oh, "I'm playing, Cara. I can't see. Come over to the bed, um, back the door to the bed, and he took Pick's hand. He had a a frame over his bed with." A sheet on it to keep the sheets off his his body. His body was so frail and the skin would have broken. And he said, um, "Aberlesson, the lads gone of a bear up by Mission Hartglower. Tell the lads not to worry. I'm going to be sound." So um, I don't know. Uh, I try not to think on it too much. Even now, it's um, it's emotional. I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, that's that's some that's some heavy shit, and it's mm -hmm. so personal. Um, I, I, I f thank you, thank you for sharing that. I don't want to. I don't want to take up too much of your time. So, the other thing I would like to know is how the conflict and what you experienced. Actually, before before I do that are there moments that haunt you about violence that you yeah committed and, well, and are you comfortable talking about any of that I, I mean i don't i don't want to discuss details because the difficulty with that is that um, we are still prosecutable right but uh, yes there are things that bother me um there are um it's just how it is I mean, you, um, do you wake up at night some sometimes, or have nightmares, or yeah, you will not nightmares, no, none of that. But I mean, you do, and I mean, I look sometimes at the completeness of my own family, mm -hmm. and um, just go, you know, our actions robbed so many families of that peace. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I, I don't in any way, um, it's wrong to say I don't regret it. I regret the fact that any of the conflict took place, but I am not making excuses for the armed actions. I thought they were necessary. I believe today they were necessary. I believe that the people with power are the people who have questions to answer, not the people without power, because the people without power struggle against power. Um, and you know all conflicts horrible um, and I would say to anybody if if you find yourself in a situation where conflict seems inevitable try everything everything to avoid the descent on the conflict because once you're in it it's extremely difficult to unravel it so um, yeah that's we all have regrets. What are some things, this would be the, the last question, um, what are some things that 
trigger you today that you experience that well, I, the average person might not imagine someone who's been I uh I, I was very um I was very very together all very very together I I left the IRA I went straight on the employment I worked I've never been idle in my life and on the 21st of January 2016 I pulled up to go into work Part outside work, I went, I can't go in here. I don't know what was wrong with me. I don't know. I just, um, I so I got back into the car. Was it a feeling of uh, of fear or? Just immobility, just incapable in of, of just making it. So I went, drove to my mother's grave and just sat and said, Look, I don't know what's wrong with me. Something very, very fucking wrong here. And Ivan Tumbler says to my wife, um, I don't know what's wrong with me, but. And progressively over um, three, four months, I just couldn't face anybody, couldn't answer the door, didn't want to see anybody, stopped showering, um, wouldn't come out of the bedroom. Just comp almost complete and utter shutdown. And um, Chrissy said to me, You need to get help. Uh, you need to. So it took me a long time. Um, and I eventually found a guy who who I could work with um, and open up to. And um, that journey took me right through to the middle of last year. Um, for the best part of a year, I my first thought in waking up every morning is I want to be dead. I want to be here. Don't want to feel like this. Don't know why I feel like this. Um, don't know what to do about it. I, I, somebody said, "Pull yourself together." You know, <laughs> Don't you think I'm trying? <laughs> <laughs> and and that was it. Was that um, it was awful. It was. Um, there was so, the only thing that that kind of saved me was somewhere way in the back of my head there was a wee voice that kept saying the way you're thinking is only because you're irrational so there was a rational part of my mind that kept saying yeah okay the pain that you're in now is overwhelming it's unbearable you want to kill yourself you wake up every morning and go fuck am I still here why didn't I just down with sleep? And you know it's awful. You're fucking. You're torn every which way by um, what would happen to the family. What didn't you know? It's just so it's madness. So I went through that really um, dark, dark period, and uh, I come out the other side of it. Um, and I'm a much more relaxed person than, mm -hmm. than I was. And talking about what you were going through helped. Oh, oh enormously, enormously. Yes. The, uh, uh, I cried constantly during sessions um, and the guy that was dealing with me I would say things he would say but describe to me how you felt and it was only then that I realised that I didn't feel I was almost an automaton so I was functioning but I wasn't feeling you know, he would say to me, okay, so you're doing, you're describing me doing this. He says, I'm sitting here horrified, even thinking about it. How did you feel? And I said, well, it's just what you had to do. He said, no, 
it wasn't what you just had to do. It was abnormal. It yeah. was, you know, so again and again, and he, um, he literally, he started, I suppose it worked in a way too, because he, he, um, he was a very insightful guy, and he was able to, um, he said to me right at the start, he said, look, I want you to read this book, because he, he knew I read a lot, and he says, just, just try, I says, I haven't been able to read for, for six, I haven't lifted a book, and I would devour books, but he recommended that I look at Dante's Inferno, and uh, so he said, you're going to, he says, the journey you're starting here now is, he says, you're going to have to go down through purgatory into hell before you can come back up. He says, and that's going to be painful. He says, but the, so um, that's what we did. And I deliberately chose to pay for it. You can get counselling on, on national health, but I said to myself, um, if I go into free counselling there's no incentive to come out of it whereas if I'm paying for it it's costing me money mm. and I'll have at least that incentive to get out of it so I was afraid that counselling would just become a dependency that you would never really deal with issues mm-hmm. you would just keep if something was painful to deal with sure there's no or you problem. just keep putting off you the, just the painful stuff putting off the painful stuff I and, got you and just let it drift away into the distance Whereas if you're paying for it... You're going to be efficient. You're going to be efficient. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> well, that's, that that's sense. the way I am. Yes. Yeah, so being frugal paid off. Yeah. <laughs> being frugal saved your life. Yeah, it did, it did, it did, it did, did. That's it. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for sharing all this stuff. Uh, uh, is there anything that you'd like to say before before we wrap up? Yeah, Always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite songs from <laughs> Get Up There. Uh, man, it says, If life seems pretty rotten, <laughs> that's a brilliant song, but it's a philosophy. It really is. You know, for people who've never seen the movie uh, Money Python's The Meaning of Life, it's one of the best movies ever, <laughs> of all time. ever made. And the scene where the difference between the Catholic house and the Protestant house. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Laugh out loud. Laugh out loud. Oh, they're brilliant. They, yes. uh, yeah. But I mean, that, that, that I would say that, I mean, it, it, no matter how bad it gets, it always gets better. Yeah, if, if we just keep moving our feet forward and, That's it. and and don't give up. Every journey begins with a one-way step. Yeah, yeah. Gut. Fadshar Oat. August. Matasha Vigayas Jokla Shaw. August Gaili Gogov. Tagaki Mako was Lorigi. Uh, anyone out there listening to this who, who's a Gaelic speaker at any point in the future, don't forget, keep her lit. <laughs> <laughs> many, many thanks to, to Jake and <clears throat> again to Michael Core, uh, who helped set up this interview. He uh, put me in touch with Jake. Uh, and Michael's interview is great as well. That's from a couple of, uh, couple of weeks back. Um, before I take it out with a uh, half dozen surveys, uh, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can do it financially or non-financially, but we desperately need your help. Um, this this show <laughs> cannot uh, continue on people just merely thinking it's a great show. Um, any way you can help out would be great. So uh, under the show notes of every episode is a list of 
of ways that you can help financially or non-financially. And one simple way is to subscribe. Hit the subscribe button and that would be awesome. And spread the word through social media. Um, I want to give some love to a betterhelp.com. They're an online counseling provider. I use them. I love them. Uh, if you've never tried online counseling, uh, you should really try it. There's something really nice about waking up, rolling out of bed, going to your computer and doing your therapy session for the day. Don't have to get in the car. Don't have to look for parking. Uh, I like it. I like it. I like it. I, I like it and I love it. Um, so go to betterhelp.com slash mental, uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's right for you. You need to be over 18. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, a gender fluid person who calls themselves uh, Stephanie. They are bisexual in their 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, they Have you ever been sexually abused? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, once, my alcoholic dad and I were sharing a bed, uh, a futon on the floor of my room, uh, when I was around 12 because he got kicked out of his room. I knew he and my mom had been fighting about him being drunk, but he fell asleep and had left the TV on, so I took advantage of getting to stay up later than usual and watch the wonderful world, world of Disney. At one point in his sleep, my dad rolled over and moved to put his arm around me. I rarely received attention or affection from my dad, so I moved in closer to cuddle him back. But his arm kept running down my back and into my underwear, and he kind of cupped slash squeezed my bum and pressed his heart on into my leg. I immediately knew that it didn't feel right or good, and I was afraid and confused. He moved to take off his pants, and I jumped up off the futon and made sure he was awake by telling him I had had a nightmare. He looked confused and like he didn't know where he was when he woke up, and quickly covered himself and ran to the bathroom. He came back and slept the rest of the night on the futon, and I slept in the living room. Um, you know, no matter what your father, whether that was intentional or not, that's so fucking traumatizing. Um, she, let's see. Stephanie has also been uh, physically abused and emotionally abused. Uh, there will be books about it someday, I assure you. I just don't know where to start. Um, darkest thoughts. As an infant, toddler, care provider, and survivor of abuse, there have been times when, in frustration, I can understand the power my parents must have felt abusing me and my younger siblings. I think of things that have happened to me and have recurring intrusive thoughts in which I am the abuser hurting someone else. I can't imagine that I would ever let myself hurt a child or anyone, but I can see how easy it is to give into that anger when you have a family legacy of physical abuse and you never learned healthy coping mechanisms. Many years of therapy have taught me enough to trust that these deep, dark thoughts are there for a reason, but are not necessarily foreshadowing anything in my future. Darkest Secrets. I love my boyfriend and am committed to our partnership and building our future together, but I've thought about leaving or ending things every day since we've been together. It's like a compulsion. I can't think about how much I love him 
without also thinking about whether I might be happier without him. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to read your survey is because um, I, I don't know if there is an answer to that, but I have a feeling that there won't be an answer to that until you process the stuff where your intimacy was, you know, violated or, or uh, you know, given given a wound uh, when you were 12 years old, because that that those kinds of things, when a parent crosses a boundary like that, intentional or not, it leaves a mark on us that can often make it really, really hard to let people get close to us. Um, so that might be something worth um, exploring in therapy or you know maybe co- uh, joint counseling with your with your boyfriend i don't know but i just wanted to to share that um and i also wanted to to talk about this the sexual fantasies um what sexual fantasies are most powerful to you? Impregnation fantasies, particularly being impregnated by a black man. I think about it almost every time I get off. I can't put my finger on how it makes me feel. Like, I don't think it's inherently racist, but it's certainly shitty to be fetishizing black men. It makes it hard to discern, though, when I have had black partners who were the vice to my versa in that regard. But but I wasn't with them because they were black. So I guess that's where the line is. And I just want to say, yeah, that's, it's not what we think or feel. It's, it's what we, what we do with it. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Matt, it doesn't count as a serenade if it's just five hours of me watching you self-indulge. That might be my favorite sentence ever. It is so easy to visualize Matt as just really, really struggling to have an accurate, accurate perspective on himself. Who? I. It, I don't want to be serenaded by Bob Dylan for five hours, let alone Matt. Uh, she writes, I was too nice to tell him that to his face. We were so good on paper, exclamation point. Um, and, and, you know, in my opinion, that being too afraid to say, hey, we're in hour five of your off-key singing, not that you had to tell him it was off-key, uh, that's related to not having that bond, I think, with a parent, not having that that trust, that not being able to be your authentic self and express your needs. So, uh, you know, we tend to shut down and not say what it is that we're feeling or that we need. What, if anything, you wish for? I just hope I don't die before I've stopped wanting to die. That is so beautifully dark and poetic. I mean, I don't think anybody would wear that as a t-shirt, but it should be. I hope I don't die before I stop wanting to die. Wow. I am so stealing that and, and passing that off as my own. 
Thank you for your survey. It's, it's, um, it's just, um, well, I want to read this. How do you feel after writing these things down? I've been meaning to for a while. I'm glad I went with the stream of consciousness honesty and didn't get caught up in flowery language or trying to upsell myself. Thank you. Because sometimes I do get put off by flowery language when it feels like somebody's, somebody is, is trying to be published, you know, while they're filling out a survey. I sometimes get that with the happy moments. And I know the person filling it out is coming from a good place, but I've always, I don't know, when something's a little precious and new agey, um, uh, it, uh, makes me kind of pull, pull away a little bit, but, uh, I appreciate you not going all, all flowery. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself no humor, no hummer. Uh, he is, I believe he's 30. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, somewhere between 21 and 30, uh, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, identifies as straight, never been sexually abused, uh, and underneath that he writes, shit, at this point I almost wish I had been abused. Keep reading. He's been emotionally abused. Uh, Let's just start with the crux of my problem. I'm 30 years old, living a painfully bland existence, and I'm still a virgin. I've never had a date, haven't even kissed a member of the opposite sex. I'm not really bad-looking. My problems aren't that I've lived through wars or that I was beaten bloody when I was younger. My problems stem from just being ignored all my life. I know, despite the fact that I'm painfully normal with a painfully normal past, uh, that I have major problems dealing with life and the things it's thrown at me so far. And I just want to say, I think a better word is common because to be emotionally ignored growing up is not normal it's it's common sadly but it's abnormal at least in terms of what what a kid needs and how a childhood should be um unless you're charles dickens um i just recently realized that you don't need a fucked up family life to have major mental issues okay maybe you need just a tiny bit of a fucked up family life for that to happen kind of goes hand in hand with mental problems right i'm just a socially awkward normal looking nerd that hides a crushing secret that shames me to my core every day because i'm too neurotic to muscle through the social pain that it would cause me to get laid and because I'm 30 years old. I shame myself into thinking that I've missed my best before date and will just get further trauma from those inevitably awkward social interactions. Um, thinking I've missed my best before. Oh, my best before date, like best if used before. I thought uh, he meant date like isn't a date with a person. Uh And so it continues. I just recently found out I have borderline personality disorder. I had a seemingly normal and fine childhood, but my mother was both overprotective of me, but also emotionally distant uh, for the first part of my life, but started being a lot more mindful in her last three to five years when she was battling with cancer. My father was both physically and emotionally distant for most of my childhood. And by the way, having a parent die of cancer is a pretty big fucking trauma. 
Um, continuing. Uh, my father was both physically and emotionally distant for most of my childhood, so I believe I imprinted the role of a father figure onto my older brother, who was a covert narcissist. My family was always well-meaning and never abusive, except for my brother, and that caused my mental problems never to tip into an obvious, yeah, you need help kind of situation. I honestly wish my problems had been worse so I could have gotten help sooner. I just want to assure you that what you are experiencing is so common and so many people shame themselves for not coping better with with this. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to read your survey, because this is important. This is so many people struggle that, with this feeling that my my wounds aren't deep enough for me to feel the pain I feel or to be as fucked up as I feel or to be making the bad decisions I'm making. So continuing. Um, having been both emotionally abused by my smothering, smotheringly attention-seeking older brother as well as having an overprotective mother, uh, and I would love to know, too, what's, what is in, what you mean specifically by that because you know um very often we will assign a label to to something that if you didn't investigate it it sounds innocuous but uh you know or annoying but sometimes until you open up to somebody about it like a therapist you don't realize that it might be actually traumatic um I turned into an overly timid and shy person. I never got any of my feelings validated. I never developed a personality or sense of self because I just never found out what I liked. I always did what my brother did in order to impress him or make him like me. I don't need to tell you how that turned out. I got bullied in school, missed boatloads of opportunities for all sorts of social opportunities, Missed truckloads of signs from girls that were genuinely interested in me, but I just locked up from the thought of talking to them and avoided them altogether. I'm an avoider. You know, and that to me is the most important sense in this whole thing, is that that has been the coping mechanism. And talking about focusing on the still being a virgin at 30 is, you know, um, it's, it's, you're, you're getting ahead of yourself because to truly have intimacy, there needs to be an ability to me communicate, unless you're just talking about going out and, you know, um, kind of having just sporting sex uh, with no feelings attached and... Um, You know, I, I, I certainly I don't want to sound old-fashioned, but um, where you don't really care about the other person, <laughs> uh, really no other way around saying that because essentially that's kind of what it is: is you're just kind of a you're agreeing to use each other, uh, which is, in my experience, while it may be sexually stimulating, it's ultimately unfulfilling um, if we're looking for intimacy in in our lives, which it sounds like you really want. Um, so I'm going to just fast forward uh, a bit. 
Um, only in the last two years did I finally shed my protective shell that was holding me back pretty much uh, holding back pretty much every emotion I had felt since puberty. It's been too overwhelming to put into words, and I'm barely hanging in there, especially since I have no emotional support to guide me through it except for myself. The weight of it all has almost crushed me too many times to count. I started using a testosterone-boosting supplement that kick-started my metabolism uh, recovery process and gave me enough physical and mental energy to finally talk to people long enough to realize I have BPD and that my brother is a narcissistic asshole that I've now shut out of my life. I still don't understand what it is that's keeping me on this plane of existence, but there is some fundamental force that's telling me to just muscle through the pain. But maybe it's just my dick telling me that the pussy is just around the corner. I just have to stick around a little longer for it to show itself. And I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't want to shame you here for, for that last part, but, but that to me is, uh, there's a really kind of objectifying attitude in that, in that sentence. Um, you know, um, you know, saying the pussy and calling it it, um, because there's a there's a person attached to that vagina, and trying to, trying to get satisfaction from the vagina without visiting the person with the vagina is kind of. Uh, It is a very, very difficult long-term goal. And uh, not only is are you not doing yourself a service, it's not very nice to the people that you're doing it with. Um, unless there's a tremendous amount of transparency up front with the two of you and you agree upon what the you know, the rules are and the boundaries and all that other stuff. But I think it's pretty rare that that, that that happens. And don't mistake this for me shaming you or putting you down because I was that guy for a long time, a, a shamefully long time. Um, so I'm speaking from some personal experience of being blind to the fact that I couldn't see that I was a pig or I was objectifying or um, uh, I had hurt, that I had hurt people, that I had hurt women, um, and that I was also robbing myself of intimacy because I was afraid to be vulnerable and I didn't have the tools to ask for it because I didn't even know what the fuck I was feeling because I was just distracting myself with with shit. Um Darkest thoughts. Uh, my darkest secret is that I'm so fucking boring that I'm way too nice for my thoughts to become too fucked up. I guess that's been what has steadied me all these years. I have a strong self-correction mechanism in my thoughts and morality that keeps me relatively grounded mentally. Um, yeah, like, for, for instance here... Uh, he, he writes, I mean, sure, when I see the asses of some... Oh, all right. I, uh, 
I mean, sure, when I see the asses of some of the girls I work with in what has to be the finest fashion development in recent years, yoga pants, I just want to drag them to the bathroom, rip their clothes off, and fuck them so hard against the wall that they scream, but when it all comes down to it, I just want to talk to someone that understands me. You know, you you might have unconsciously distilled the Me Too movement right right there. If if we could get people who are afraid of intimacy and are filled with anger and I'm not saying entitlement in your in your case, but um and a lot of men, and it used to be my case, um, if we could find a way to help them achieve intimacy, maybe there wouldn't, and I could be wrong, but maybe there wouldn't be an epidemic of sex being used to dominate or humiliate an unconsenting person. Um I mean, this this is so touching what you write here. My most shameful secret is that I'm beyond the point of wanting sex. I just want to lie in bed with someone and hug them and cry until I fall asleep. I just want to find the same comfort that my mother showed me when I was a baby. I'm really glad that you, you filled this out. Um... You know, in, instead of focusing on the getting laid and getting rid of the virgin uh, status, my hope for you is that you begin to seek out a support network of emotionally healthy people or the very least people also searching to become more emotionally healthy so that you can learn human connection and self-care instead of distracting yourself from the pain or becoming embittered or hopeless. Um, and that's probably going to involve going to a support group or therapy or um, pursuits where uh, you will need to interact with women platonically and get to know them and have sex not be on the on the table so that you can, you know, get to know the person that is transporting the vagina uh, that you seem, you know, to be focused on. And and, and again, I'm not trying to shame you. Um, you know, there's a, a certain genetic component to thinking about you know, vaginas or cocks or whatever it is that, you know, people fantasize about, but it's, it's what we do with those impulses or thoughts that, that matters. And, um, you know, being horny and thinking sexual thoughts can be a totally healthy thing, but it's what is, what is it that we're trying to get ultimately? And hopefully it's human connection and maybe some love and give and take and, communication. Um, and I, I, the last thing I want to say is in my experience, cause I had to work fucking hard to get to the place 
where I am now, where I feel like this is what I want. I've been going on some Bumble dates, and, you know, I, I haven't really done much beyond afternoon coffees, but it's nice getting to know the woman in case it does go to something more than that, and because I want to feel something more than a thrill of her taking her clothes off and, you know, having the experience of sex. And what I want to say is I had to put a lot of work into getting to the place where I don't have all my walls up and I just want to use people. And most growth is in doing the stuff that we don't want to do to grow because the pain is not yet greater than the fear of trying something new. And for me, the pain, the loneliness of not being able to be intimate with people, both romantically and platonically, that had to become bigger than my fear of going and asking for help to say, I don't know how to do this intimacy thing. I don't know how to get out of my head when I'm having sex. I don't know how to let go and trust. I don't know how to feel safe. You know, not like I'm going to be beat up, but like, like I can relax and not be anxious. So I hope that makes, I hope that makes sense. And then finally, I want to read a, a, a happy moment. And thank you for, for filling that out. You know, you, you, um, whether consciously or not, you brought to the surface some really fucking important subject matter and, and some attitudes and some fears that I think are driving a lot of the dysfunction that is happening in our country and around the world in childhood, in adolescence, and in adulthood. And it's all fucking related. It doesn't just begin somewhere with one person in one time period of their lives. This is the abuse that you see going on right now might be a ripple from something that happened 400 years ago, which is also one of the reasons why I get so fucking incensed when people are like, slavery is over with. Why are, why are they still complaining about it? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, and finally, this is a happy moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself finally full. And she writes, today I cooked a real dinner for myself and ate it too. I struggle with depression and for several years have had nausea when I'm stressed. I don't know why I pronounced it nausea. I have never pronounced it nausea. I just made myself nauseous. For several years I've had nausea. <laughs> what? Nausea? Wow. It was going okay till now. Uh, I struggle with depression and for several years have had nausea when I'm stressed. That makes food seem impossible. Last week, I finally talked to my therapist about it, and we talked about why I feel like I don't deserve to eat and use food as a last-ditch attempt to control uh, with other stressors. 
I don't know how, but tonight I felt hungry for the first time in a while and went to the store, cooked, and ate a full, balanced dinner and wasn't nauseated at all. I know this is a small, I know this is small and there's more ground to cover, but I finally have hope that this could be the direction I take going forward. Yes! Yes! This is a perfect example of what recovery looks like. It's just stringing together moment after moment after moment like that and not tripping out about what the future holds. Just little baby steps. And before we know it, we've developed muscles that can help us deal with all kinds of shit that used to overwhelm us or fill us with shame or make us feel totally hopeless. And it starts with little things like that. And I love that that came after the previous survey because that is the road out of the tough part of being stuck and feeling lonely. Self-care. It's so huge. I hope you enjoyed this this, uh, episode and these surveys. And if you're out there and you are saying to yourself, my situation, my life isn't bad enough for me to feel bad, to not feel good. Stop it. Stop it right now and just go into the feelings that you're feeling and talk about them because it doesn't matter. This isn't a contest. Don't piss half your life away or your whole life away minimizing what you're feeling and blaming yourself for what you feel. It's what we do with those feelings that matter. And getting into a solution and asking for help has been the greatest and scariest decision I ever made. And now I get to do this show and stumble through surveys and mispronounce nausea and be a pompous buffoon. And isn't that what we all want? to be a stumbling, pompous buffoon. (laughs) Just never forget, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in know some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.